0: you who are the god of abraham the god of isaac and god of jacob are our god and all the promises that you have made to them are being fulfilled with us today lord that you are our god and we are your people so we pray as we come before your word that you would open our hearts and our eyes Lord. that you would reveal glorious truths lord about who we are in you and who our glorious savior is so we ask that you be with us, time lord holy spirit come down and open our hearts in christ's name we pray would turn into your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, <clears throat> excuse me. Today I want to look at Exodus 15, 16, and 17. Not in a lot of depth, otherwise we'd be here until next Sunday. Um, Over the past couple years as I've been uh, studying, I have really come to enjoy the Old Testament. The Old Testament has really opened my eyes to the New Testament, and likewise the New Testament has opened my eyes to the Old Testament. I can't read a single verse, it seems like, anymore in the New Testament when I'm thinking about, oh, that's what God was saying in the Old Testament he would do, or that was what God was getting at in the Old Testament. And it just makes the Bible so much more fun and dynamic. And I know we all started our uh, Bible reading plans in January, and usually about, like, Exodus 19, done, right? It's like, it gets hard from that point. But then there's got to be something in there that really draws our hearts in. You remember after Jesus was resurrected and... He met some despondent disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they were all excited that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised coming one. But then the Romans crucified him, and they are all upset. And then Jesus comes to them, and he says, well, why are you so upset? The scriptures are speaking about this. And then he proceeds to give them an entire sermon. And what was their response to the sermon? Man, didn't our hearts burn as he explained these Old Testament passages? I mean, when is the last time that our heart has ever burned when you're reading in the Old Testament? So as we look at uh, 15, 16, and 17, I'm going to pray that our hearts burn as we look at the God who's revealed there for us. So let me give you a little bit of historical context about what's going on. God has just beaten the Egyptians. God has just delivered his people out of hundreds of years of bondage and slavery and the people are right on the hills of walking through a sea, miraculously. And then when the Egyptians tried to go through, there were floating wheels in the ocean. Because the ocean came down on them. So they're crushed. And now the Israelites realize that they are free-free. I mean, first time they were just leaving Egypt. But now they see the army crushed. They're free, never to be put in bondage again. Could you imagine just like that deep breath? Like, wow, we are a free people never to be enslaved again. God has done it. They have a bright future in front of them. Their hearts are are filled with gratitude. And then in in 15, Moses writes a song. and I mean, they're celebrating the victory that God has just performed. But in that, they speak of God's covenant faithfulness. In verse 13, they said, You, Lord, have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength, your holy abode. So he says... Your steadfast love, your grace, the the love that you poured out, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a promise to us, you have poured that on us, and you have redeemed us, and you're guiding us. In verse 17, it says, an aspect of hope, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, a place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God had said the whole time when he's trying to deliver them from the Egyptians, let my people leave that they may come and worship me. They know that they're going to a mountain and they're going to worship God and God's going to establish his relationship with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. But now as they are actually on the other side of the Red Sea and going to walk through some wilderness to Mount Sinai, God is going to test them. And we get this on the first account in verse 22 in chapter 15. It speaks about Um, This bitter water. It says in verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitter waters. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And then in verse 25, Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So they're walking three days in the wilderness. There's a lot of people around them, cattle, children, dust, and they're waiting for water. And when they finally, you know, that whole idea there's a the mirage out in the wilderness, like water. And then it's like, oh, it's not even a mirage, this really is water. And they get to the wine, they try to taste it and it's bitter, and they can't. And they get really upset and they start grumbling with God. And so God provides for them miraculously. He provides the water. But then he says this. And this picks up in verse 25. And this is really important. There the Lord made for them a statute, a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. This is the key to understanding the next couple chapters. As they're journeying, it says God tests them. Will you obey my commandments? Will you trust me? Will you obey me? Will you do what I've told you to do? And we're going to go to the 15, I mean, you've already seen them grumble once. We're going to see him grumble again, and we're going to see him grumble one more time. These are a grumbling, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. In fact, it's almost just demonstrated that in one sense the Egyptians were the problem, yes. they were You were in bondage to the Egyptians, but there's a problem with your own heart, too. You are a people who can't obey the commandments of God. So God is going to give them commandments, and as we understand from the Bible, whenever God gives the law, the law cannot save you. The law just basically shows you that you need to be saved. So they're going to walk through the wilderness realizing over and over that they're going to need to be, a sa- be saved. And so this breaks down, I'm going to actually break this down into three types of testing. God tests Israel. Israel tests God. And then we're going to look at God testing Christ. So God testing Israel. Manna. The next leg of the journey, they ran out of the water, and now they're moving in. And in chapter 16, it says, they set out from Elim, verse 1, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. So they're right in the middle of a desert. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said this to them. Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate the bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, the whole assembly with hunger. Doesn't that sound absurd? (laughs) God's like, I just delivered you with mighty signs and wonders. I opened up ocean for you. I made water drinkable for you. And now you're wondering if I'm out here to kill you? It seems a little absurd. In fact, they said, Would we have died by the plagues you're throwing on the Egyptians? It would have been better if a meteorite hit us, really. Really it would have been. Right? God had just said, if you obey me, I will not put my curses on you. I will heal you. I will not put my plagues on you, okay? And they're like, would you it would have been better if you had. That's absurd. And they're not just saying that God's indifferent. Like, hey God, don't you care that we're out here dying in the wilderness? They're they're saying he's cruel. You brought us out of the wilderness to die slowly. Okay, now, of course, we can sympathize, right? You know, three days without food or water? Come on, we're Americans. Try missing a meal, right? We act so holy and and pious until our blood sugar drops, right? When we skipped our morning coffee, right? And then you're all grumbling at your wife, complaining at your kids, snapping at your coworkers, right? So we get put in these situations, and we just, the sin starts just coming out, right? And then, and then the, you know how sometimes you get pressed in by a crowd, and you're like, just leave me alone. Give me space, right? Here they are in a crowd of thousands of people. You know, people traveling around you. I mentioned dust, stinky sheep, stinky neighbors, right? This is not a good day. And after a, a while of this, yeah, after a while, they're done. And they start grumbling, and it says like this. This word for grumbling says it's like the grumbling, grumbling started and started building and building and building and building until the whole congregation was grumbling. And we grumble when life's going well. We trust God. God, you're a miraculous God. You provide so much for us. You're a good God. We sing praises to God, and then something happens. We're like, God, you're mean. God, you're good. God, do you even care about me anymore? Right? So these people, I mean, it's a great picture. I mean, these guys are pushed to the extreme, but come on, Americans, whenever we ever push to the extreme. Right? So if Israel is having this problem, we ourselves have this problem, but this is the test. This is the test. Are the people going to trust God? Is he going to provide for them? That's the question. Will he provide for them? I mean, because we know the story. If You've read this. Manna. What does God do? He gives manna from heaven. Right? So why did he wait so long? Why did he wait until he saw, started, getting, started grumbling and complaining? He could have started providing manna day one, day two, day three. See, you're, you're satisfied. Because he was pushing them to the point where they started actually questioning whether or not God would provide. And in that moment, it's in that moment of need that you actually start having to trust God, start depending in faith upon God, that God would actually deliver. That's the, that's the Christian life. James says, Count it all joys, brothers, when you meet various trials. Joy? No. Trials? No. We don't rejoice in trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So God provides for them. God provides manna and quail. Now the manna comes daily. Each day, manna comes to the ground. God says, collect enough for that day, don't collect enough for tomorrow. I'll provide manna tomorrow. But these, these, are, these are frugal Israelites. They, they understand that if they want food you know, for a midnight snack or food for them all, you know, save up. So they don't listen to God. They take manna, and they get two days' worth. And the next morning they wake up, and the second day's worth is all rotted. All right, well, God says, well, didn't I tell you that I would provide manna the next day? Because that's, that's the issue right there. God provided manna today, but he's certainly not going to provide manna tomorrow. So save up for tomorrow. God says, no. I'll provide manna today and tomorrow and each day as you need manna. And then, some kid drew on my notes. <laughs> and then, <laughs> God says, by the way, on Friday, Saturday's Sabbath, and I don't want you guys working, so why don't you collect two days' worth. Don't collect two days on the other days, but on Friday, cl- collect the double day's worth, and that will last you, and you won't have to. You can rest on Sabbath. Friday night, People out there collecting one load, Saturday, on the Sabbath day, they're out there trying to look for manna, no manna. <laughs> God says, really? <laughs> really? He, like, he asks them, why do you test me? He says in verse 28, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Now, that's a good question. How long will they not obey God? And, and then that should lead them to the next question. It's like, man, why can't I trust God? Why can't I? Again, the law is revealing sin. God says, you got to trust me. You'll have enough for two days. You'll have enough for one day. But the sin, the rebelliousness in our heart, the part of our heart that doesn't trust God says, "Nah, I don't think so. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to collect. I'm going to not trust him. We need atonement. Really, we do. Rebellion reveals that we disobey, we break God's law. We need atonement. God needs to save our little broken heart. A couple days, like, well, not a couple days. A few weeks later, they're going to be on the foot of Mount Sinai. God's going to say, you're my people. You need sacrifice. You need sacrifice because you won't obey me. So if you're going to be my people, someone needs to pay for your transgressions. God gives them manna. God gives them the quail. Manna is daily. But get, get this. Quail comes once. Quail is like the special gift. Like three days, you're grumbling, that's fine. Manna every day. But, you know, today, why don't you feast on some meat? Man, isn't it great that God gives us who do not deserve anything special gifts like that? So manna quail. Then in verse 17 things get interesting because things start to escalate. So we've seen God provide water once. We've seen God provide food when they needed food. Now in verse chapter 17 they're out of water again. Now think backwards. God provided water. God provided food. You're out of water, so God's going to provide water. So they're sitting there with no water. And in verse 2 and 17 it says, The people quarreled with Moses, saying, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, because he's like, Is it my fault that you don't have water? Okay, Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test God? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Here we go again. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? In the last verse of this account, in verse 7, Moses summarizes this complaint. Is the Lord among us or not? He says, you're testing God. You're asking, is the Lord among us or not? Or not. Well, that's silly. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, manna fresh that morning. What do you mean? Is God with you or not? You've got evidences of Him all around. And it says the people came and they quarreled. Now, this word for quarreled is a special word for quarrel it's lawsuit. These people came with a lawsuit saying, Are you among us or not? The people, so God's been testing Israel. Now Israel's turned around trying to test God. We're putting you on trial, God. You're not good. You didn't give us water. So the people put him on a legal trial. I'm, I would almost argue, I've been thinking about this for a while. I would almost argue that these people are trying to force God's hand. Is he among us? God, are you among us? Bring water right now. <laughs> We're putting you on trial, God. Show up. Moses says, why are you testing God? That's what God was saying. God was testing Israel to see if they would obey him. Now they're testing God to see if God will obey them. This is all out rebellion. You don't test God. God's God. You're created. Peon, God, right? You don't have the right to call God to account. In the book of Job, Job's like, all right, God. This is, this is Job's big mistake at the end. it's like, let's have a trial. Let's have a trial, God. And God says, you cannot put God on trial. I'm not arguing that this is like cold, cruel calculation. Like, okay, guys, let's get together. If we all mob on God, he's got to give us what, you know. He said he's our God. If we all mob on him and start complaining, God will have to deliver. I think it's just that emotions, you know, everybody gets irritated and hot. And they just know. It's like my daughter sometimes, right? She just knows she starts crying and crying and crying that she might just get what she wants. Now, that's like 11 months old. Now, we're all adults, right? It looks different. Like, we grumble and complain. We don't have temper tantrums. But it's the same condition of the heart. Now remember, when God had started this whole thing, I am bringing you guys out to test you. And If you obey me, I will not put the sicknesses and diseases I put on the Egyptians. Okay, so they failed. (laughs) So now what are you expecting? It was a conditional clause. God said, if you obey, then I will not put these plagues on you. Which means if you disobey, I will put the plagues on you. Because you're just as... Bad off as the Egyptians. You're just as bad as them. You've got the same rebellious hearts as the Egyptians. So now the plagues, they are coming. Moses sees it. God says, what am I to do? And the Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the others of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Oh. Moses like, here we go. The staff. That was the instruments by which God struck the plagues on the Egyptians. And the first plague is when he struck the Nile and turned it to blood. And so Moses took the staff in front of all the Egyptians, taking some elders with him. He struck the Nile. Plague start. From that point on, it's plague time. And so now Moses says, staff with elders to the people, oh, yeah, (laughs) the plagues that you said that you would curse the people with, they're coming." So he walks before them, and in verse 6 it says, and behold. Now, you've got to get in your mind. Moses really probably thinks that when he hears that, that God's going to strike them with plagues. He says, behold. Verse 6. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. (laughs) Complete change. A plan. I'm not striking the Israelites. They disobeyed you. I said, no, strike the rock. And who's on the rock? Who's on the rock? God's on the rock. I'm going to stand on the rock, and you strike me with all those plagues. And when you strike me with all those plagues, guess what? Living water, and they can drink. They don't get the curse. They get the blessing. They put them on trial. And God says, no, I'll take the hit. I'll take it so they can drink. so we as people utterly fail the test. Their hearts are heart. hard. But God takes the curse. God takes the hit on the cross, right? He receives the entire curse that we due, so we could have living waters. Now, at the verse seven, uh, in verse 7, it says that they named that place Massa. Keep that name in mind. We're going to need that name. They named that place Massa and Meribah because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? God tests Israel, Israel tests God, and now God tests Christ. It's Matthew chapter 4. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. <coughs> now, this account in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 comes up a few times in the New Testament. And I'm going to reference this one. I think this is the most important one. It's all important. Um, They saw, the the writers of the New Testament, they saw a striking similarity between the account of the Israelites going through the Red Sea, going out and being tested in the wilderness, and Jesus Christ. So in chapter 3 of Matthew, Jesus is baptized by John. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that when the people pass through the Red Sea, they are baptized into Moses. So like the Israelites had a sort of baptism into Moses, in other words, when they passed the Red Sea, they are being identified under Moses as a a people. So too, Jesus, when he shows up on the scene to do his earthly ministry, he's baptized with John's baptism of repentance. It's a little strange because Jesus is the Holy Son of God. He does not need a baptism of repentance. But what he's doing is, is he's identifying himself with us. He's he's casting his lot among us. He's going to live the life that we should live. So he gets baptized by John. And then just like Israel was taken by God out into the wilderness to be tested, so too Jesus gets sent out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. And not just three days and Jesus quits. Jesus is out there for 40 days, 40 nights, without food, without water. And God's sustaining him, Which makes me wonder if the people hadn't stopped, stopped and started complaining three days into the journey if God would not have sustained them for 40 days and 40 nights. In fact, I think that's true because Moses said later on in Deuteronomy that you, God was going to show you that you could have done it but since you guys disobeyed he gave you manna so you still learn the lesson. So you still learn the lesson. He says that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I'd almost argue that they could have done it. It would have been hard. 40 days and 40 nights without food. But then here is Jesus. We're we're quitting at meal one, day one, day three. And Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights. He's out there in the wilderness. And then after 40 days and 40 nights, you probably couldn't get any weaker than that. Then the devil comes. Satan comes, and he starts tempting. He starts throwing out some temptations at Jesus. And there's three of them. And the first one is about bread. Seeing a similarity was the first temptation with the people after God made a statue with them, manna, manna bread. There's a, there's a correlation going here. That's what the people of the New Testament writers were seeing. So in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, Satan challenges Jesus. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus replies, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what, so I'm sure you've heard this said, Jesus fights Satan with scripture. And not just any scripture, this is Deuteronomy. Each, both times, all three times, he quotes from Deuteronomy. If we were going to be tempted by Satan, and your understanding of Deuteronomy was what was going to help you pass that test, how are you doing? Like me? Yeah, not good. Okay. So (laughs) make sure, yeah, Deuteronomy, all the Bible is important. But Jesus replies from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Moses tells the people, that God fed them with manna in order that they would understand, I've already said this, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Moses looking back on that account saying, you had to know that you were going to live by the word, by the will of God. But you didn't. Jesus turns around and says, I don't need that bread. Physically, I don't need it. If I'm supposed to die right now, I'll die right now. I'm not, so it's not an issue. I do not need that bread. Jesus, in John chapter 4, after he talked to the woman in the well, this Samaritan woman, and the disciples had gone to town to get some food, they come back some food. He said, Jesus, we got your food. And he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's more important to obey God than physical nourishment. It's more important to obey God than anything physical in this life. Ultimate life comes from God. And separation from God is ultimate death. It would be far better to die from starvation than to disobey God. And Jesus realizes that. And so he starves instead. Second temptation, jump. This is a weird one, right? It's, I would never have never had understood this temptation. Verse five The devil took him to a holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bury you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. How's this even a temptation? You're scared of height. You're standing on a pinnacle going, jump? Are you kidding me? No way. I will not jump. That's too high. I'm sorry. Satan is offering Jesus a way to identify himself as the Messiah. It's it's Psalms. Satan quotes Psalms chapter 91. Israel knows Psalms 91. Someone comes jumping off the temple and angels come and rescue him so his foot doesn't even strike the ground, guess who that is? That's the Messiah. And in the, in the Jewish pinnacle, I mean, this is a public place, a public place of worship. The place you're expecting the Messiah to come one day. When the Messiah comes down with angels, he's here. So that's Satan's offer. Jump, and you can go, because God's faithful to you that God will not let you strike the ground. Just like when, so what does Jesus say? He says, from Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And, the, and that passage finishes, as you tested him at Massa. So just like the people of God were testing him at Massa with water, are you among us or not, God? Give us water right now. Obey us. We're going to force your hand. So too, God's, Satan's trying to give Jesus a way to force God's hand and show him to be the Messiah. And listen, Satan's offer is a lot better than God's way. He's saying... Jump. That's all you need. God will, God will save you. Because if you don't, what's it going to take? You've got to go to the cross. Really? Do you want to go to the cross? Really? That's agonizing. But Jesus says, no. I will not force God to do something. I will be obedient to God. Then the third temptation is the inheritance. So Satan's like, okay. This is the ultimate offer. Verse 8. Verse 8. Worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's Easy. Worship me. And this is a legitimate offer. Satan is the prince of the power of the world. As of this point, Satan has dominion. Satan hasn't been defeated. I mean, God's sovereign. Yeah, he's the king king, but he's allowed Satan to rule over this earth. It's a consequence of sin. And Jesus has come to take it back. That's in Psalms chapter 2. It was one of the great messianic psalms. God says, ask of me to his Messiah. This is what God says to his Messiah. Ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance. So Jesus comes knowing that his inheritance is the nations. Satan says, just worship me and I'll give it to you. Come on. Let's circumvent the whole cross thing. Let's let's circumvent all the agony. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be crushed. Just worship me and I'll just give it to you. Game over. And Jesus says, you should... I would die in a temptation, right? <laughs> what does Jesus say from Deuteronomy? <laughs> you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Him only shall you serve. He'm not, he's not going to worship Satan. He's not even going to worship himself. Because ultimately, I think, this temptation is about himself. You can get away from having to go through this agony by worshiping me. Now, okay, so you have to bow down to Satan. That's rough. But it's really about Jesus getting out of it. But Jesus won't get out of it. It's a temptation for Jesus to put his own needs first. But he doesn't. When Moses in Deuteronomy 6 was saying, you did not worship the Lord your God, each, he's explaining something. Each time that they were tempted in the wilderness, each time Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, each time we are tempted, it's a priority of worship. Who are you going to worship? Yourself? or God? Are you going to obey yourself, or obey God? And Moses is saying, you had other priorities of worship, and that ultimate priority of worship came, like, was full force at the foot of Mount Sinai when they got impatient, and they made a little idol for themselves. God's not coming down off the mountain, let's make an idol. We, We are people who worship. That's just the way we're made. We are made to worship. Now, it depends on what you're going to worship. And our hearts tend to worship other things other than God, and that's why we sin. So we need to worship God. We need to treasure God. His law has got to be a delight to us. And that seems hard because it's hard. We have desires. Like, how do you take a desire uh, and turn it on something else? Because, I don't know, when I'm angry, I'm angry. That's just all it boils down to. It's not like I say, hold everything, Levi. You're angry. You're worshiping this more than that. You should worship this over that. I know. I know. I know that's an issue. I know I should not be angry about this or anxious about that. But I know and I should be trusting God. But man, it's so hard to turn that heart around. But then here's Jesus, who's just as faithful the whole way through. So the first thing we gotta see. So here's something. The first thing you gotta see, that Jesus is the one who overwhelmingly conquers versus us who overwhelmingly tend to fail. So the first thing, we have a sympathetic high priest. Can Jesus understand our 21st century struggles about what it means to run out of gas, to skip Starbucks, to look at porn? Does he know what those struggles are even like? First century guy, carpenter. He doesn't understand my situations. And I argue that he does. In fact, I think he understands your temptation even more than you do. Because he's experienced greater trials and greater temptations than you've ever had to bear, ever. Because imagine there's like a thousand-pound dumbbell. Can you lift a thousand-pound dumbbell? No. Right? You try, you grunt, you groan, you're sweating, you're straining, and like if you're lucky to get off the floor, right? But Jesus takes that thousand pound dumbbell and agonizing his sweat and he lifts that dumbbell and he holds that dumbbell completely totally the full temptation he bears the whole thing and overwhelmingly conquers and it wasn't easy so he understands the pain that you're going through in any temptation in any situation and so we need to have a big dose of humility because when we get to temptations we're like yeah I can handle it nah no I'm fine no, no, I'm good. In the Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you should read it sometime this week because Paul looks at the same passage at Exodus 15, 16, and 17. And here's one of the conclusions that Paul draws from that. If you think you're standing, beware it lest you are falling. You think you've got everything under control when you are completely overwhelmed by the idolatry of your own heart and you just don't realize it. So that when God brings in temptation and test, that's when you see it. So we need a big dose of humility because we need, as Hebrew tells us, we need hope and help in our time of need. We need God's grace because the point is, let's uh, how you're talking about trying to move your emotions, trying to move the idolatry of your heart. The fact is you do not possess the ability to change the desires of your heart. Only God has the ability to change the desires of your heart. In every single temptation, you need God. And guess what? Because we have a sympathetic high priest, we can boldly, confidently approach the throne of God for help. It's great. It's not only like you have a you know, pass to the, to the back seat or something like that. Like, oh, yep, I can come into the throne room. Jesus gave me a pass. So you're sitting there on the side of the throne. Room like, oh, there he is up there. God, up there on the throne. No, it says you can boldly approach that throne and ask for something. I need help with this. I need help. And he's not going to turn you down. He's going to help you. Because Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I know how to get through this. And he'll be sympathetic to you. We know that the outcome of Christ's ministry is that he, off, he rejects Satan's offers. He offers himself as a sacrifice. He offers himself on the cross. He didn't fail in any temptations. He didn't need a punishment. We failed temptations, we needed punishment, but Christ went on the cross for our behalf. He's the one who took the little brother, just like when he stood on the rock at uh, Massa and took the strike of the plagues. This is one of the reasons why reading the Old Testament is helpful. You just see Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see Christ up there, and you know he's being crushed. And and it's kind of hard to realize maybe what's going on. But if you think of all the magnitude of the power that God threw on the Egyptians, it's overwhelming. And that's what Christ gets hit with, on the cross. Completely, fully, all the way. So there's not a drop of wrath, do you? So Christ, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might have oh, the righteousness of God in him that we might be accounted righteous. Because we're not righteous, we're sinners. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourgings, we are healed. He is our healer. So as we celebrate communion, just think of how glorious, how loving Christ is, that He would take the curse, the blow on our behalf. And that now as we celebrate communion, we know that we have access before the throne of God to help us in our time of weakness, help us in our time of need. That gospel is good for you when you're saved, and it's good for you today and every day into eternity. And you'll just rejoice in that. So if the ushers will come up and pass out the offer.
1: before the throne now When Satan tempts me to despair And tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there Who made an end of all my sins Because a sinless Savior died My sinful soul is counted free For God the just satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God
0: in the wilderness started with food and drink. That's a fitting picture. because Without them, you die. And it was revealing to us a spiritual reality. Without God, you die. Paul makes an interesting statement about that rock that was struck in the wilderness. He says in Corinthians 10, the Israelites drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Christ was the one who gave them living water that day, each day. Christ is the one who gives us living water day by day. So are you thirsty? Christ says, whoever drinks of the water I give him, he will never thirst again. Are you hungry? Christ says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In Christ, we have abundant life without costs. So therefore, seek the Lord where he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man is lost. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Mm-hmm. We have living water. We have bread at such a great price. A price we could have never, never have paid. But we have it free, without cost. Just take of it. You have access to the throne. You have access to Jesus Christ. Take it. And the Lord said, in the night of betrayal, he broke the bread and blessed it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, he blessed it, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Okay. For as often as you eat this bread and the drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is our hope. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. Lord, you are amazing. That you could be that person who when you were hungry, you did not grumble. When you were thirsty, you did not complain. You didn't get irritated. You showed compassion on us. You showed compassion to us. And you died for So we might have the joy that you have, that we might have a relationship with God. So Lord, as we move into this week and we know that there are trials and we know that there's temptations, I pray that you would be with us, Mm -hmm. that your rod and your staff would comfort us, Lord, that we would be humble and admit our need for you each time we struggle that we would go before the throne and ask for help in our time of need, because we are needy. And Lord, that to us, that you would become, by each passing day, a more glorious Savior. And from our hearts, you would draw out worship, for you are worthy to be praised. So be with each one here, God. Strengthen and encourage and be with each one here. Would help us to be a help to each other, to encourage each other, to be pointing each other to the gospel. And we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Levi. Thank you for being with us. And uh, we have a, uh, a little bit of a different service plan for next week. I hope you come to uh, join us and uh, go in God's love and peace this week get whose child you are. God bless you. Please stand.
1: I'm Jordan's story.